welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Today, I get to sit down with Tim Troll, the executive director of the Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust. Tim has a mighty powerful initiative going on right now to create a conservation easement in Bristol Bay that would, in fact, block the development of the proposed pebble mine. It's super important work, and he's going to talk about that. He's also going to talk about a very cool odyssey he's about to undertake, sailing a double-ender sailboat that was used in our Bristol Bay fishing operation many years ago. They used to only use double-ender sailboats to haul fish up out of the deep in Bristol Bay. If you're wondering if Tim's name sounds familiar, you are not off. Tim is the brother of Ray Troll, who's on this show and a frequent collaborator, and the uncle of Patrick Troll, who's editing this very episode. If you like what you're hearing, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the visibility of the show. And we're going to be coming back to you soon with regular programming. Uh, Enjoy this PSA, and we'll see you soon. Tim Troll, welcome. Where are you coming to us from today? I'm coming to you from Kauai over in the... What? What? Wait a minute. Yeah. You're not in your usual haunts? What's going on here? Well, I'm taking a break from my usual haunts. Just had an le- opportunity last minute to uh, come over to Hawaii with some friends from Alaska. So um, here I am. Good for you. Boy, if anybody deserves it, you do. And we're going to talk about all kinds of aspects of the work you do, but um, I'm going to toss it right over to you from the start and and just let you tell us your story. How did you find your way to Bristol Bay and how did you come into the work that you do? Well, coming into Bristol Bay, uh, well, I guess maybe start. I mean, I came to Alaska in 1978 as as a lawyer for Alaska Legal Services, a VISTA volunteer. And uh, I asked to actually be assigned to Dillingham because a friend had told me that if you really want to be in a cool place with lots of things to do in the outdoors and you like the wilderness, then Dillingham is the place you want to be because the state had just um, just set up the Wood Tichik State Park, which is the largest state park in the nation, and that's real close to Dillingham. And, and gorgeous. Wow. And gorgeous, yeah. yes. You can't. It's, it's something else. But uh, the offices in Dillingham were already full, and Bethel had a need for constant uh, work, and so they I sent me to Bethel, which turned out to be just a really wonderful place. I enjoyed that and wound up living in the YK Delta uh, Legal Services for a couple of years, then went over to the Yukon to be the city manager of St. Mary's, where I really got um, really got to know what salmon were like for people in that region. Um, then went back to grad school for a year, got married, uh, decided I should try practicing law, did that for half a dozen years in Anchorage, didn't really um, 
didn't really uh, work for me as well as I thought it would be. Took a job as a city administrator out in Sandpoint, another community that does a lot of uh, depending, depends a lot on commercial salmon. And then got a chance to go to Dillingham. Uh, was called about coming out to an interview for uh, to be the CEO of the Village Corporation. Um, and that was in 1994, four or five. And so I went out there to be the CEO of Chugyung Limited, which is the village corporation formed under ANCSA, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act for uh, the native residents of Dillingham in that area. And went out there, raised my family there, uh, really got to like Dillingham. Um, my wife then got a teaching job in Anchorage, so we moved to Anchorage. And, but I stayed connected. Uh, so that's that. And while I got while we were out in Dillingham, as a CEO, the board of directors worked with me to form the Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust. We did that in 2000, and that's where I've been ever since, for the most part. So what what exactly? For our listeners uh, who are unfamiliar with the uh, Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust and land trusts in general, what is this work that you do? Um, how, what, what does it look like on the big picture, and what does it look like on a on a day to day basis? Well, maybe um, thing to start is is with the corporation, the Village Corporation. <clears throat> I don't want to go into the details of ANCSA, but uh, every Native village. Uh, in existence in December of 1971, became entitled to uh, land, sections of land. And in area, that amounted to about 300,000 acres. And um, a lot of our land, the Chogun Limited land, was along the Nushigak River and other other places. But also as a result of ANCSA, um, there were a lot of individual native claims that were also uh, taken care of because prior to ANCSA, there was the Alaska Native Allotment Act, and that's where individuals could apply for and receive up to 160 acres of an individual allotment. There were thousands of these. In fact, when I came on uh, with legal services in Bethel, that was my one of my primary responsibilities. I had a stack of maybe 500 cases that all needed to be evidence-gathered, it was. It was. It would have taken a long time, hundreds of years, to resolve all of these because they were individual little claims, each of which had to be adjudicated. So when Anilka, the Alaska Native uh, National Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act came along, there was a provision that just automatically approved all of the native allotments where there were applications pending at the time, subject to some certain exceptions. But for the most part, what that resulted in from a village corporation standpoint is all of a sudden your lands were pop-marked with native inholdings, private inholdings, which uh, looking forward, particularly in certain areas, the corporation can see that was going to make it difficult to manage its lands. And we were beginning to see that some of these native allotments were being sold to non-natives. And that was a big concern for us on the Nushigak River, where we, as the corporation, had set up a very good land management program to keep 
to allow sport fishing, but not to overuse it because we still had a major subsistence interest among all our shareholders. So how do we deal with that problem? <laughs> how do we solve it? Uh, well, we could buy the native allotments as a corporation, but we wouldn't be buying them to do anything with them. Um, and corporations don't buy things to just not do anything with them. So it becomes, you, you can't justify spending shareholder money for an asset that's not going to perform for you. So that was the one problem. The other was, well, how do you decide which, which, parcel is worth purchasing or should be purchased. And the board was very reluctant to do that simply because they didn't want to be favoring one shareholder over another shareholder. So, and we did have shareholders who typically would offer the, you know, the corporation the option to purchase their native allotments first. We would do that, but only when we could purchase it for a reason to develop, like developing a subdivision in Dillingham. There it had commercial value to us, but uh, a native allotment that was just not going to be developed would have no commercial value for us. <laughs> and so it wasn't, wasn't long, you know, we're trying to deal with that issue. And then one day, a fellow by the name of Brad Micklejohn with the Conservation Fund passed through my office. And we had a visit, and he said they were in the process of purchasing a native allotment up in the Woodtichick State Park, one that was on one of the well, the Yugulapak River, if you've been up there, you'll know that that's a huge sport fishing uh, river. And the native allotment was right there. And I knew the, uh, the shareholder. Actually, his name was Harvey Samuelson, Harvey Samuelson Sr. And Harvey wanted to sell it to the native corporation as well. But, you know, that was just not something we could do. Uh, but the Conservation Fund agreed to come in and purchase it and ultimately turned it over to the state. But in our conversations with uh, Brad at the Conservation Fund, because I said to him, there are lots of native allotments out here. Could you help us purchase the ones that are of critical importance for basically maintaining our subsistence uh, cultures? And he said, well, probably not, because the Conservation Fund has different priorities nationwide. But why don't you guys form a land trust? And I didn't know what a land trust was. Mm. So <clears throat> if we do further discussions with the Conservation Fund and then later with the Nature Conservancy that was also becoming interested in uh, the region. <clears throat> and this is back in 1998, nine, in this, this period of time. Um, <clears throat> so actually working with both the Conservation Fund and the Nature Conservancy, our board the board of directors of Choging at the time, so they would put up some money if uh, those organizations would put up some money. We'd send some people back to a big conference of land trusts that happens every year, which we did. Sent two people back. Uh, they came back and said, no, this is a pretty interesting idea. Why don't we pursue it? <clears throat> and we did. So land trust is basically a nonprofit organization that's dedicated, there's probably Thousand, there's probably more than 1,500 in the United States of all different varying sizes. But from our standpoint, it would create a nonprofit organization that could independently evaluate primarily these native allotments at the time and determine which ones were the important ones for basically habitat, subsistence, protecting salmon, um, and 
it wouldn't necessarily be purchasing allotments. Uh, we would be willing to purchase a conservation easement. And a conservation easement is a statutorily created uh, land restriction um, that would allow you to purchase the development rights over a piece of property, but allow uh, the native owner to retain, you know, using it for subsistence, having the typical uh, fish rack, drying rack, cabin, that kind of thing. You know, we felt that was, from a conservation standpoint, that was uh, a compatible use of the property, as opposed to, say, somebody coming in and building a huge sport fishing lodge and all of a sudden bringing thousands of people in. <clears throat> and then it got pretty urgent for us when uh, that almost happened on the Nushigak. Actually, it did happen in many ways. When a parcel on the Nushigak River got sold and we began to see a subdivision proposal come out for an 80-acre parcel of property, subdivided into 81-acre parcels of property. And then all of a sudden people were realizing we could see the biggest village pop up on the Nishigak River every summer uh, and huge pressure on the population. Um, so that did become a concern. That property did get subdivided, and but I, I don't know that it's all been, been sold. But that was the biggest concern and why we created a land trust. And uh, initially, uh, we decided we had a meeting called a meeting, several meetings actually, um, but the primary one was getting particularly the leaders of the Dillingham area and the villages on the Nushigak together to talk about the idea and whether we should pursue it. And I remember the meeting in which we everybody decided yes to do it, is we also talked about issues, should it be just a native land trust? Um, and decided probably not because really... Um, the commercial lodge interests out in the region, which were primarily non-native, really had access to people with the kind of money that you're ultimately going to need to do many of these, these acquisitions. And they had an interest, too, obviously, in keeping the country uh, as natural as possible. And then, of course, there's the whole commercial fishing industry that, although they may not realize it, they are dependent upon uh, the habitat that produces those salmon. That's the factory that produces the product. So we decided it would not just be a native land trust, uh, that it should be all-encompassing. And But then what to name it? Um, I thought it would just be the Nushigak, because the Nushigak River was our primary area of concern. Um, but then my good buddy, Lukey Aquacock uh, from Equac, says, nah, if you got the Nushigak, you got to have the Malchatna. So, okay, the name's going to be the Nushigak Malchatna Land Trust. Um, and then Bud Hodson, who's now the president of my land trust, he has a lodge up in the Tickchicks, says, well, you know, what the world knows about is the Wood Tickchick State Park. So we have to have the Wood Tickchick in there. So we had the Nushigak Malchatna Wood Tickchick State Park. Yes, yeah, now it's becoming a mouthful. <laughs> it became a, so, yes, we actually became known as the Mouthful Land Trust. Um, but it was very, it, you know, we there was also discussion whether it should be Bristol Bay wide at mm. the time. And, uh, the discussion was real, probably not at this, at that time, because, uh, those who formed the land trust, like Lukey was an original incorporator and Herman Nelson from 
Kaliganik and Tommy Tilden from uh, Choging and Dillingham and others, they knew the Nushigat country and didn't feel like um, they knew enough about the other parts of Bristol Bay to be able to serve them. Uh, that changed later as we actually started getting uh, requests for help and doing projects over uh, in the Iliamna uh, Quijack area. So in 2013, the name got expanded to the Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust, and we got rid of the name that so many people had trouble pronouncing. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, that would be done. <laughs> well, uh, meanwhile, uh, as this is developing, this story and this entity, there is a, a battle in the background that has been started, gosh, in the late 80s. And now by the mid-90s, it's really ramping up. Uh, can you tell us about how the work that you did in creating the Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust then uh, overlaid onto that battle for Bristol Bay uh, against the proposed pebble mine and its massive open pit sulfide copper and gold and molybdenum mine in the headwaters of Bristol Bay? Well, um, there wasn't, I mean, yes, I think people just kind of knew that there was something up in that area, but it really wasn't a battle in terms of uh, what you see now really until the 2000s, maybe the, you know, the early 2000s. And um, how we got involved in it was actually through a relationship uh, that the land trust had with the, the Nature Conservancy. Um, I was hired on to be the Southwest Alaska Program Director for the Nature Conservancy in 2004, I think it was. But it was sort of a cooperative relationship between um, the Nature Conservancy and the Land Trust. We both participated basically in in my salary. But I was I was stationed in in Anchorage, and the purpose was to develop a traditional use area conservation plan for the communities of the Nushigak River, in cooperation with the Nature Conservancy and Bristol Bay uh, Native Association. So, uh, and we had, the Nature Conservancy had a grant from uh, the Moore Foundation and a grant and from uh, some tribal money through Bristol Bay Native Association. So this was really before Pebble was in everybody's consciousness. It was out there. Um, but our, our project was to go through each of the villages and we set up a little commission and uh, to do interviews, basically, uh, traditional ecological knowledge type interviews in each of the village, collect place names, kind of figure out the areas that the communities felt important for certain species that they had chosen for us to find more information about. Obviously, sockeye, king, coho, in terms of importance for salmon, plus whitefish and other things that were sort of had importance in the subsistence lifestyle, as well as moose and caribou and things. So basically trying to create these areas where um, to overlay over in maps, you know, these are the areas where the areas we should protect. And then from our standpoint as a land trust or even the nature conservancy was, okay, well, that gave us a way to prioritize 
uh, say, native allotments from their importance as a habitat and gave us a way to sort of look at the countryside and say, okay, well, here's the private lands, here's the state lands. What private lands do we need we feel are important? Um, so the whole thing was then to move towards creating what we ultimately call the Nishigak River Watershed Traditional Use Area Conservation Plan. And it took us several years to pull that together. Um, and the interesting thing is we really did find how important place names, traditional place names were in terms of identifying areas. Um, but it was during that process that all of a sudden Pebble became, really came out of the spotlight. And I think that was when they discovered the East Deposit or the West Deposit, I can't remember which, that really sort of increased the value of it. Right. So that shifted our thinking um, because we were still sort of towards the end of developing the watershed plan. But we said, well, this has to be more than just looking at the land. What are the other things that we should be doing, particularly in light of the fact that there might be this development out here? And uh, so that also said, well, we may be a land trust or we may be villages. We have to think about the water. Um, and the water doesn't belong to anybody, uh, in theory. Um, so working, of course, with the Nature Conservancy, um, we sort of develop a three-prong approach to uh, Pebble. At that time, the board of directors wanted to actually gather as, um, the Nature Conservancy and the Land Trust as much information as possible to see if they should ever get to a point of taking a position, yay or nay or neutral on this pebble project. So the approach we took was, well, we should build a program around sort of three ideas. One was we should be able to, we should work towards getting as much protection for the habitat and the water as existed under current law. What's available currently that we can take advantage of to make sure that if Pebble comes along, that we have a seat at the table. And then uh, we felt that um, we needed to have our own group of scientists. We had to be able to employ people to go up sort of as a, in an independent manner to uh, gather information, not so much against the mine, but to make sure that the information we are getting we can evaluate from the standpoint of, did they get enough information? Did they get it right? Did they get it wrong? And we wanted that to come from people who were not necessarily consultants to the mind itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so not that we would question their science, but check it in a sense. And then the third, that meant getting our own people up on the site to be familiar with, the area where it was. And, uh, and so that's kind of what we did. And again, that was <clears throat> primarily supported from yeah, a variety of funding sources, but mostly uh, from the Nature Conservancy at the time. And for us, that meant we need to do anatomous stream surveys. Mm -hmm. You know, under Alaska law, ADF and G, if there's a salmon, if it's a salmon stream, basically, and it's identified and proved to be a salmon stream, then it gets a higher level of uh, permitting protection. Mm -hmm. 
So we did notice there was not, and that meant really going out and getting the little small streams, the little headwater streams. And so we focused on the, the pebble deposit area. And in some cases, we actually tried to work with pebble on this to determine were there salmon, were, how far did the salmon go up that area? Um, and are there, what are the salmon streams? So we actually did uh, a first helicopter survey back in 2008 or something, mm. uh, led by Caroline Woody, uh, right. who was well-known in this, to Fantastic. see if there, were actually, if there were actually salmon on the deposit. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who know salmon, uh, coho salmon are really pioneers. They're the ones who tend to go as far up the stream. And this is all stuff I didn't know until I started working with this group of people. But as a result of a quick survey that we had over three days, we found that there were salmon actually on the deposit itself beyond and past Frying Pan Lake, which is kind of a lake that everybody's aware of in that area. So that that's sparked our interest, and we decided to do more uh, anatomy stream surveys all around the deposit and get those added to the catalog so that if the mine should go through there would be at least a higher level of scrutiny with respect to those streams. And uh, because you can't disturb a stream without a permit, habitat permit from ADF and G. So that was important to establish the extent of salmon in the deposit area. Um, the other big component, and a very expensive one, was also under Alaska law, you can get in-stream flow reservations for fish. And that doesn't... In-stream flow reservations can be granted to individual organizations, individuals, um, organizations, or the state. So we did identify major streams that could be affected by a mine. Those would be like the Coctoli, um, Cascanet Creek, possibly the Stuyahak, Upper Telerik, Lower Telerik. Those are all air water bodies, streams that sort of come out of the pebble area. So we uh, wanted to get moved through the process to do in-stream flow reservations to try to collect the hydrologic data necessary to ultimately apply for a reservation in those systems for fish. So under Alaska's water appropriation law, which is very unique, um, because it allows for these reservations and, it, and individual organizations, you don't have to be a state government, uh, can do this. But it is expensive and it requires a collection of five years of, of flow information, so and helicopters and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, working with Bristol Bay Native Association, Trout Unlimited, um, who else was involved? Bristol Bay Trout Unlimited. Uh, all the Nature Conservancy, lots of them. Um, we put the money together to do to do all the the collection that was necessary. And this means going out to each each river system a couple times a year, three or four times a year, putting in USGS gauges, and then collecting the data, and then five years later filing an application for a reservation to the Department of Natural Resources, and that was done. But most of those applications are still pending. They're, they've never been approved or disapproved. But nevertheless, what that does, it then does you as the sort of holder of that reservation on behalf of the public 
um, are entitled to basically have standing uh, in a future decision as to whether water can be removed from that system uh, without damaging fish. So that was that. And then the third component was just getting scientists up on the site. And um, a lot of things have come out. So it was basically a science-based pro, uh, so, program. So we're talking about uh, the areas and the drainages that are just in and adjacent to the actual mine site. Right. Can, right. can you talk to me now about kind of flash forward a little bit here to the Pedro Bay Rivers Project and what what is it? What's going on with it? And why are the lands and watersheds associated with that project critical in this issue uh, to obviously conservation, um, but also in specifically in the fight to keep um, the proposed pebble mine from creating or constructing their their operation? Well, we as, you know, at least backing up a little bit, we as a land trust, our real obligation is to try to protect habitat regardless of where it is. I mean, obviously, pebble is a threat, but there are lots of lots of needles that pebble has to thread in order to get their permits to actually do that. But in the meantime, we were also just very interested in protecting habitat that was that needed protection. And ultimately, when we expanded to be the Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust, um, that leads you to Lake Iliamba. Because if you look at a map, if you look at a map of southwest Alaska, most people would look at that and say, wow, look at that. You've got Lake Clark National Park. You've got Katmai National Park and Reserve. You've got Togek National Wildlife Refuge. You've got the, world, you know, the world's largest state park in the nation. That's a protected area. But you look at the map and you say, well, the big hole is the Nushigak watershed and the Kwechek watershed. And then you look at the numbers. Where did the salmon come from? Primarily over history, the Nushigak watershed, uh, particularly important for uh, king salmon, for Chinook, and uh, Lake Iliamna, which is the beating heart of Bristol Bay when it comes to sockeye, because sockeye is, you know, our lake spawning fish. They, they were totally unprotected. So uh, that focused our interest in just what are good land protection opportunities there. And then you overlay, all right, what's the infrastructure that would be needed in order to develop the pebble mine. Um, obviously, they need to get from the mine site to um, to Cook Inlet uh, with a road or pipeline of some sort. And uh, between that site and Cook Inlet, there are several Alaska Native Village corporations that own land. So obviously, um, Pebble would need to get uh, leases, use permits from them to do that. So not that that was necessarily a focus. The first opportunity that we saw for doing some meaningful land conservation in Lake Iliamna was a series of islands in the northeast corner of uh, Lake Iliamna that uh, were critical for salmon, uh, but also critical for Lake Iliamna's unique population of freshwater seals, uh, only one of five populations in the world. So we, <clears throat> we've thought that that would be an excellent opportunity for um, a conservation easement of sorts. And Pedro Bay was the primary owner of that. 
And over a period of time, we secured a conservation easement from them, which was very nice in the sense that there are no native allotments on those islands, so we don't have inholdings to worry about, uh, to protect the islands for seals. So we did do a conservation easement with them that covered 12,700 acres. And then also actually did one with Iliamna Natives Limited because they have the other half of the islands that are important for the seals and uh, talk with them. And they were also gracious enough to grant us a conservation, I mean, sell us a conservation easement, the same thing, over another 1,300 acres of land. So basically we were able to protect that whole string of islands that actually create create the first protected area, significant protected area on Lake Iliamna. Um, <clears throat> so that was fairly successful. And then not too long after that, um, Pedro Bay Corporation asked us if it would be possible to help them uh, in their, I, I don't know if you'd say struggle, but they, they were obviously not happy with the prospect of maybe um, a road coming through their native corporation lands uh, mm-hmm. to access Pebble. And, and it would be a critical road as well. It, yes, you? it's what's called the Northern Corridor. It's the one that would not involve uh, having to actually cross Lake Iliamna with some sort of ferry, unless you went the long way around the southern part, which would also create lots of difficulties. So we looked at that, but we also realized, um, after looking even further into it, that this particular corner of Lake Iliamna is absolutely critical for the Bristol Bay commercial fishery. ADF&G, Alaska Department of Fish and Game, and others, Bristol Bay Science and Research Institute, UW. I mean, we've they've really helped parse the genetics of the salmon that go into Lake Iliamna. And, you know, particularly the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, we were able to see that this northeastern corner of Lake Iliamna, uh, at least over the last decade, has been the biggest producer for salmon coming out of Lake Iliamna. And uh, so we sat down with the board of directors of Pedro Bay Corporation. They told us the areas they wanted to protect. Um, wasn't necessarily focused entirely on the road because there are certain, but you could look at it and you could say there are three critical areas. Knutson Creek is an area up in the Knutson Bay, uh, the Pile River, and in particular, the Iliander River. And so we spent probably a year kind of defining the areas that they felt were important, that we felt were important, and came up with some acreage and a number. Um, and that's what we've done. So we have negotiated three conservation easements with Pedro Bay Corporation, the village corporation for the village, mm-hmm. that combined uh, – would be 44,000 acres. It would protect the spawning areas of those three main streams. Mm -hmm. And uh, incidentally, would block the road uh, to Pebble. I mean, it would interfere with the road to Pebble, let's put it that way. Um, So we are in the process now of raising the money to do that. Um, So that's sort of the step is identifying the areas that you want to protect then we have to get them appraised. So basically paying an appraiser to go out and look at all these properties, come up with a value. Um, We are typically restricted 
by virtue of our sources of funding to uh, the, the appraised value, but the value was significant enough that it, you know Peter Bay was satisfied with that, and that value came to uh, eighteen point seven million dollars. Um, but we, as not as a land trust, part of our obligation is we have to be around forever. And when you're taking on a conservation easement, you're saying we are going to make sure that the development rights are not abused during, well, until the next glacier comes through, basically. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) we have to raise money for what we call a stewardship fund. We typically set up an endowment that over a period of time, uh, there's a source of money that we can tap into to monitor the property making sure that nothing is happening in violation of the easement. And then should it ever <clears throat> need to, to defend it. So if somebody goes onto the property and starts, particularly the owner of the property, which is still the native corporation, they own the surface, the surface state. They still, um, we have to be able to, if we necessary, be able to pay the court fees to go in and defend the easement. So that's where the balance is primarily the stewardship fund. So we're trying to raise $20 million, 18.7 of which would go directly to the corporation, some of it of which would then go to the land trust to assure the protection forever. So that's kind of what the that, bottom line is on that. that well, that, that's a bunch, um, but a it's bunch. also, uh, yeah, you know, it's doable. And uh, and it's it's a huge, I mean, just to recap, it's a huge, huge move in protection for this region and, and a very critical and strategic move in the protection of uh, absolutely critical spawning habitat for the two main arteries of Bristol Bay, the Quijack and the Nushigak. It's keeping uh, the sovereignty of the indigenous land intact and allowable to folks to continue to use it for their subsistence ways of life. Meanwhile, it's also literally blocking or making it very difficult for uh, the proposed pebble mine or any other entity that wants to come in and, frankly, take that ore to a port, a convenient port, to then um, ship it out. All those things for a measly twenty million bucks. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. <laughs> well, uh, you know, having been having been around the the pebble issue uh, for a long time now. Um, it's just, uh, there, there has been a lot of frustration as you probably know, you know, the, there was once it looked like the EPA was, was going to shut it down and then that didn't happen. And that's still a viable alternative. It's something that I think the region really wants and needs, but, uh, you know, part of the thinking here was, is there something we can do that doesn't require a federal or a state agency to take some action or not take some action? Yes. And even, even with the in-stream flow reservations that we were doing, and even if you did the got every stream as possible into the anatomous waters catalog, you're still depending upon the state to enforce those things. You're still depending upon the state to, or the feds to enforce a, a 404C. This was at least an option that said we don't we can do this without having the state or the Fed say yes or no. 
Um, well, yeah, because God, God forbid that the uh, <laughs> the winds of du jour change and the temperature changes. And the God, we've never seen that before uh, with the federal or state political climate. Um, I, I think it's brilliant. And um, before we move on to another really exciting thing that you're doing right now, um, we'll we'll kind of have the catch all with how folks can follow you and help in the end. But for right now, to, to this point in the conversation, how can folks get involved with the Pedro Bay Rivers project if they want to contribute to it? Well, the best way would be through uh, working with our partner, the Conservation Fund. Now, they are a national conservation organization and have probably been the most effective uh, uh, partner we have had in, uh, in Bristol Bay in terms of land acquisitions and conservation easement acquisitions. And they do have this on their website, um, and you can donate through that, or you can even donate through the land trust, the land trust website, and designate that you want your donation to go to the Pedro Bay Rivers Project. Um, that's probably the easiest way. And the net and the conservation fund is leading the effort on the national level uh, to raise mm-hmm. funds for this. And we have uh, we have had uh, some significant donations from. Uh, various organizations. Um, and so we're still very hopeful we can get there by basically we have a, the conservation fund is under contract with, uh, Peter Bay corporation to raise the money by the end of December this year. Um, at which time, if we haven't raised the money, then Peter Bay, uh, is not obligated to move forward with the deal. So we are definitely trying to make that deadline. Clock is ticking. Well, and just for all of you out there who don't have a Save What You Love t-shirt by uh, art designed by Tim's fishy brother, Ray, uh, be it known that $5 from each one of those t-shirts goes directly toward this effort. So get yours. They're still in stock, and uh, we'll keep them in stock to keep promoting this effort. But moving on for the moment, I know we could talk for. No, another I'll send you a link. I'll send you a link that you can put on your your page too, if people actually wanted to donate. Fantastic, and project. we'll put it in the show notes, and we'll put it in um, our Avis Wild uh, Instagram and the Say What You Love Instagram great. feeds as well. Thanks. You bet. Um, and okay, so moving on to, uh, to another topic for now. We'll, you know, we can <laughs> talk about that for the rest of the show and more but you have a serious adventure coming up this summer can you tell us about it how'd you get involved in it what does it involve uh how long is it going on just give give us the whole spiel it sounds amazing well the spiel is uh if you've um if you really get into the history of commercial fishing in bristol bay which is a fascinating history and it plays into everything that we're even looking at in, in this whole fight that you've been engaged in is basically the bottom line is we want to protect that commercial fishery because it's been around a long time and there's no reason it can't be around for a longer time uh, if we manage it well. 137 years this year that fishery has been going. That's longer yeah. than <laughs> yeah. 1884, first cannery. Um but then you can't look at that history and say, when I went out there, uh, you know, and asked around, and I could see these old, these wooden boats sort of back in the bushes and things like that. And you'd ask, well, what were these used for? Oh, this is what they used to have to fish with, these sailboats. Sailboats. I mean, they were fishing out there in Bristol Bay in sailboats. Yep, 
They did that from 1884 to 1951. 1951, you can touch 1951. I was born in 1951. And it's like, wait a minute, we were still out there fishing in sailboats in 1951. What a fascinating (laughs) story that would be. And guys were still around. They could talk about it. And uh, so I just became fascinated with that history. And, of course, the sailboat is the iconic image of that commercial fishery in my mind. And um, then I put together a book and a a traveling exhibit of photographs from that and collected interviews. And uh, in one of the sessions we were presenting in Homer, a lot of people showed up for it because there's a strong connection between Homer to Bristol Bay. And somebody said, hey, I got one of these sailboats. Let's go out back and I'll show it to you. So after the presentation, myself and another friend of mine, and actually a fellow by the name of Mel Munson, who was a fish, who did fish sailboats for a little bit, we went over and looked at it. And yeah, okay, it looked like it was a boat that could be actually fixed up. And, you know, very, and it was already floating. And I think Mel mentioned, wouldn't it be neat to see one of these things back in Bristol Bay, wouldn't it? And so that was a spark of the idea that we should actually let's take one and back to Bristol Bay because many of them came over, came out of Bristol Bay. Long story short is we're finally got that boat ready. Um, and we're going to plan, we planned to sail it back two years ago, but COVID got in the way. Then, uh, the sail maker we had unfortunately passed away and we had to get a new sail made for it. And so that put us off, but this year, um, we're ready to go. And, um, The importance to me for the project is, one, um, we'll be sailing it from Homer across Cook Inlet over the portage into Lake Eliamna, which is an old traditional portage. And the first village we're going to visit is Pedro Bay. Wow, cool. The the idea, I mean, it to me brings, brings attention to the fact that the sailboat is an iconic image that says this fishery has been around for a long time um, beyond what current memory can remember in terms of the beginnings. And Pedro Bay is taking one of the biggest efforts since uh, to protect that fishery. So uh, we hope the sailboat project brings attention to that effort, the Pedro Bay effort, but also just to have people appreciate this unique history um, so the plan is to leave Homer after July 4th, uh, have it in the parade. We had it in the parade there last year, uh, sail it across the Cook Inlet, um, over the portage, go down Lake Eliamna and arrive in Naknek in time for Fishtable, which has traditionally been um, the sort of end of the fishing year celebration in Naknek that's gone on for decades. Um and that would be the third weekend in July. And um, so that would be, for me, it's been somewhat, I think, fortuitous that we've had to put it off for a couple of years. Because if, uh, if the Alaska Department of Fishing Game is right, and everybody believes they will be, this is going to be the biggest return of sockeye on record. So since 1884, we will have more sockeye coming into Bristol Bay to be harvested than ever that's ever seen. And what's what's uh, more appropriate than closing the loop with having a sailboat that initiated and started that fishery in 1884 back to participate in some modest way 
uh, in the biggest run to ever return to Bristol Bay. And again, that biggest run is directly related to the habitat that's all up in the Nushigak and it's all up in the Quechak and all the other major systems that has been pretty much um, untouched for all these years. And I mean, that's, that's just the bottom line is if <laughs> that's the factory and why should we try to burn it down and let's do everything we can to make sure it doesn't burn down because there's no reason why we can't fish that fishery for another 134 years, preferably without sailboats, but uh, no reason it can't be around for, well, easily for another 134 years, if not forever. So that's, that's kind of the little story that goes behind that sailboat. Jim, the vision of this, I just love the, the big, big picture vision that then takes and, and meets the confluence of actual experiential action on the ground. Uh, I can't possibly say another word that um, augments what you just described. It's so perfect. And obviously I wish you fair seas and uh, <laughs> good, good, company and um are are there ways are there ways that folks can um participate in this in some way follow along with you on this journey and um you know have some is there any kind of social media or anything involved that folks can you know kind of see what you're up to as this thing's unfolding well we do have a a facebook page called sail back to the bay on facebook and there we have been posting um you know progress on the you know as the, the boat is privately owned. The fellow who owns it is a very interested in the history of the region. And he's, he's posted, you know, what he's done to fix the boat up. Um, and we've just been posting other stuff there. And that's kind of where we're keeping people up to date. Um, hopefully Great. we'll be doing more as that time gets closer so people can follow the trip if they want to. Um, and there are just lots of neat stories along the way. So we're hoping to stop in every village um for a day or so and you know put on little presentations let people see the boat because i think most of the sailboat fishermen if there are any left they're in their late 90s probably by now but everybody out there uh has a family connection to the boat because their fathers or grandfathers would have fished in them or great-grandfathers and the boats themselves were converted uh to power and survived in the fishery probably for another 20 some years. And so people who first started in the fishery as young men who are now in my age would have fished them as conversions, um, mm. what's called a conversion. So um, I just think it's a, it's a neat way to bring the whole story together um, with a beautiful boat, because uh, they were beautiful boats, um, and a fishery that's just been around a long time, and we all have responsibility for protecting that fishery. And Pedro Bay uh, has stepped up to the plate to really take action to do that, and I think rightfully so. So, yeah, no kidding. Um, and um, you know, on that note of um, the people, uh, the people that have been in this region um, that you love and I love. Um, for millennia, thousands of years, you and I recently got to spend some time together with um, with folks from around the region, uh, mostly 
um, indigenous elders and uh, other younger warriors for Bristol Bay in a gathering in King Salmon last month um, in April. Mm -hmm. What have you observed? Uh, You have worked with the people that have been in this land and around these watersheds for time immemorial. What have you observed about the spirit and heart of the people and their connection to wild salmon in this incredible place? Well, it's not, it's not difficult to observe the connection that people in the region have to wild salmon. Uh, and that's true throughout all of Southwestern Alaska. I mean, um, I was a naive person when I first came to Alaska in 78. I, I don't think, you know, and I look at, I don't think we even ate a salmon growing up that I can recall. And I asked my brother that and my sisters that. Now we couldn't really remember anything. And then you come to Alaska and it's like, salmon is it. You see it everywhere, every summer, fish camps. And, uh, and of course, around the fish camp, it's just not about salmon. It's about family. It's about extended relatives. It's about all joining together to do something. And, and that's harvest, harvest this fish for, uh, for their sustenance. It's, it's, so it's more than just catching a fish. Um, and you see that, uh, through the generations and, you know, in, in King Salmon or every meeting I've been to really. Um, uh, and now I've watched it at least in this particular area for 20 years. And you see people you knew as young boys or young girls who are now leading this particular fight and have come to replace people like, uh, you know, Bobby Andrew and Ophi Olson and Terry Heffley and others who were sort of very instrumental in the beginning and who aren't with us anymore, but they have, people have come to take their places, which is just wonderful to see. So in that sense, um, it gives me uh, it gives me hope that um, that that fishery can remain there forever. And the important thing is to realize that one, the fishery is shared with more than just the local people who live there. You know, our commercial fishery, the bulk of people who come there do not live in the region and may not appreciate the fact that really they are dependent upon those people who do live in the region to protect their resource that they get to benefit from. And sometimes I don't think that connection is adequately made. So those people in the commercial fishing industry and in the sport fishing industry who, you know, particularly in the sport fishing industry, who really led the fight against Pebble in the early days, you know, if Pebble has done anything, um, I hope it makes folks who've come to that region either as tourists or sport fishermen or come to that region every year to participate in the fishery mm. come to re- appreciate and support the people who live in the region and use that resource and who actually own a lot of the land that ultimately will provide the product that sport fishermen and commercial fishermen use. And so if there's anything that comes out of Pebble, because we've all been united in this particular effort to protect what's, well, as you say, we all love, 
and a value yeah. for each each particular user, that that continues beyond uh, this fight, and that um, we don't lose that particularly those who use the resource but don't live in the region uh, respect the people who do live in the region and need that resource and what we've been able to accomplish doesn't get lost in the, in the future. And so oh, eloquent. The, the group that we had in King Salmon, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the case. Will be the yeah. Case. Well, I, I, I was certainly was um, buoyed by uh, that connection between elders and young people. And there are some incredible young people that are uh, leading this, this moving forward. And I mm -hmm. feel like we are in, in wonderful, wonderful hands. Um, as we start to wrap this conversation up for now, um, just wanted to point out an observation that leads me to my last question for you that I didn't realize that at the, in the early parts of um, your work, specifically with regard to uh, the, the proposed pebble site and the watersheds in that area, the, um, the Teleric and uh, the Coctuli and the other uh, streams that are flowing into um, the main arteries, that you actually worked with Pebble at some, some point, and at least in, in a spirit of cooperation to try to get some, some data. Um, and I want to parlay that into the, this final question for you, which is, you know, we are in such a divided, polarized, tribal time in, in this country and, and around the world, but in particular in this country. What's your vision? What, what can you speak to um, based on your experience with making a place for others at a long table of uh, human experience to work toward supporting the things that we mutually love together that that absolutely um, evaporate political lines and and some of the other dogmatic things that have separated us how, what how, what can you say to offer some um, encouragement toward finding common ground together <laughs> isn't that the question we're all struggling with uh, regardless of whether it's a pebble or, or anything else um, yeah. I don't know. I think in the early days, you were somewhat hopeful that, uh, you know, that we, particularly with the, the folks who were sort of overseeing the Pebble project back then, and when we started up, that if, if our goal was, can we do a product project like this and protect the salmon resource, that um, we can do that together. But it would be a together thing. And maybe come to a mutual decision that, okay, the mine can happen and here's the way we can make it happen. Or, okay, the mine can't happen and let's just not take the risk. I don't know how you ultimately resolve that. I mean, in the end, um, Pebble thought they had a project that would do that. But, of course, we differed in terms of, of the long-term impacts of that. In the end, I think... To me, it goes back to there are people who've been living in this particular region for thousands of years. And this has been a struggle with the mining industry all along, is oftentimes those resources are where indigenous people live. And should we give the indigenous people who live there basically the veto over a project? 
And and I, I think yes, but how that all works out, I don't know. I don't think Pebble started this whole thing thinking they, you know, they're out here to just get rid of a salmon industry. Um, but in the end, they have their interests, and in the end, the salmon are there, and they have just been able to not show that they can do that without risk, without removing lots of uncertainties. And, you know, <laughs> I like to go back to a, a statement I found in the very first issue of the, the, the Territorial Board of Fishing Game that was formed in 1948 before we were state, and a statement that they said at the front of that that basically said, we understand that we're a developing state and a developing state needs to develop its resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mining, forestry, whatever. But we have the greatest resource available to us right now, and that's salmon. And while, yes, we have to do all of these, we need to be looking at these other things. In the bottom line, if we can't do those without protecting the salmon, then we probably shouldn't do them because salmon has been there uh, for a long time. And people don't, I like to just draw the comparison that people coming to Alaska think, oh, it's a mining state because we had the Klondike gold rush and we see all those great pictures. 1898, the salmon industry started in 1878, 20 years before in terms of the commercial fishery. So really we are a salmon state. We're not a mining state. Um, but, you know, I, I, I can't offer you anything that says how we can bring those together. But I think if people reproach things as human beings as opposed to uh, corporate CEOs, um, mm-hmm. I think we can get there. But um, that seems to be increasingly more difficult, Mark. Um, so Well, if, you know, learn anything, especially after this period of being disconnected through a pandemic, um, our human connection is vital. We need it as, as a species. And I think that just by perpetuating contact connection, um, and sharing our commonalities of things that we do love and need in our lives, you know, food, clean water, family, love those, you know, these resources, the and and beyond resources, these connection to things like salmon that, man, they define us. They define, uh, you know, clearly the people that have been here for thousands of years. But even mm-hmm. us interlopers who have been lucky enough to drift into salmon country uh, from our our parents and grandparents. I I just delivered a keynote address yesterday uh, with a at a conference considering life without salmon. And uh, the the address that I um, gave, uh, I titled it "The Alchemy of Grief." Like we got to go through this thing, touch this thing, especially folks here in the Lower Forty Eight that have really lost the resource. Bristol Bay is not like that, and um, if we can can come together as Bristol Bay has facilitated, all all kinds of different people, sport fishermen, commercial fishermen, tribes, conservationists, uh, let's face it, rich uh, CEOs and um, people coming from the East Coast that know how beautiful and incredible this place is as a fishery for sport fishing. You know, that love part is is a big deal. And um, I, I, for one, 
Um, I'm just so excited about the work that you've already been able to put together, uh, going it uh, the way that uh, you have with um, all of the people and all the resources and all the, uh, the folks that you've banded together to find some protection for Bristol Bay, regardless of governmental organizations. And, and I love this story that you're tying this 100-plus-year-old fishing industry to the veneration for this land and protecting it in the fishery and with through the uh, double ender sailboat adventure you're about to do. So all that to say, thank you. And, um, I'm, I'm not going to let you escape though, without, without playing the bonus round, uh, which if you've listened to this show, you know, no one escapes from, um, it's a little mental exercise, but, uh, but it's fun and it's fascinating what people come up with. So here, here goes. Let's say, uh, God forbid, in a knock on wood, the tsunami were to come and, and uh, be on the way and you only had to a couple of minutes to get out, even a couple of seconds to get out one physical thing from your house uh, before the, the floodwaters come. What would that one physical thing be? Well, actually, I faced that situation once. Uh, living in Dillingham, we lived in a house and there was a tundra fire moving towards the subdivision. Well, we were all told to get out and I was downtown working at the time. And so I drove out and went up to the barricades and I said, I don't know where my wife and my kids are. I need to go in and see if they're there. Um, so they led me through to go look at them and fortune, <clears throat> look for them. And fortunately they weren't there. So here was the possibility my house was going to burn down. I had this opportunity. What am I going to save? Mm. Uh, I looked at the cat, decided, nah, the cat can wait. <laughs> <laughs> but I came, out with, I came out with two things. Uh, I had my dad's letters from World War II. Oh, yeah. And I didn't want them to be lost. And the yeah. second thing was I had an autographed baseball from Roberto Clemente. Uh, wow. I actually you know, saw him sign. And I said, those are two things that uh, I have to have. I mean, they're quick. I had to decide quickly, but those are the two things I picked up and took out. Fortunately, I well, didn't. The house didn't burn down, but I actually made that choice. <laughs> that okay? So I've asked that question dozens of times now, and that is the first time anybody's actually been through that and actually made a choice. That's incredible. And those are two very worthy choices. I might add. Well, if my kids had been there, I'd have taken them, but. They fortunately weren't. Yeah, well, we're <laughs> we're we're assuming the loved ones and the, yeah. the critters are coming with first, yeah. but that's yeah. a wonderful answer. Second, an- the second question of three is uh, now on a more mm, metaphysical level: um, attributes about you that make you yourself. If you could only take two to move forward in life with, what would those two attributes be? Attributes that I think of myself as taking forward to the future. Yeah, if you can only take, like, say, your sense of gratitude or your spirit of generosity or the things that make you really fundamentally who you are, what are, what would those two things be? Well, um, I wouldn't, that would be a hard one to answer. Um, well, I've lived with my name Troll for a long time. Um, and it's come to serve me well in some cases, and in other cases it's been uh, a problem. 
because troll has taken up a whole different meaning in this world than it did when I was growing up, and it was just about oh, wow. curly goats and Jeez. things like that. So Never I'd like to think uh, I like to think the troll name in Alaska has done well for itself, and mm-hmm. I want to carry that forward. And fortunately, I have a new grandson that's going to do that. Yeah, um, congratulations. And uh, second of all, um, uh, geez, uh, I would I, I I'm I'm been very grateful to be uh, engaged in the f- actually almost all my time in Alaska with the Yupik people of southwestern Alaska, whether it's Bristol Bay or whether it's uh, YK Delta. And uh, I would hope that they would think uh, of me as someone who did right by them, as opposed to the other alternatives. And uh, I, I think um, it's some of the things that I've been able to do, either successfully or not successfully, that I sit back and I, I, I take, um, I think I did my best. <laughs> so... So I would hope that, uh, that that would be one thing that would go forward is that maybe a few of the things that I've worked on, like Pebble or not Pebble, but Bristol Bay or Yupik Dancing, mm-hmm. that are things that would continue. So Beautiful. Lastly, is there, is there anything you'd leave behind to be washed away? Well, I hope to leave behind my dad's war letters and autographed baseball of Roberto Clemente. <laughs> 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 to be consumed by the floodwater, or no? To, like, is there anything that you'd leave to just be, you know, wa- consumed oh, and oh, purified okay. out of your life? Oh, purified out of my life. Um, I have a few really bad paintings that I've done in my life. <laughs> that if if they were never or or writing, you know, those are things that. Geez, I need to take care of getting rid of those before I'm not here anymore so that nobody has to see them. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I have a draft of my first screenplay that w- yeah, would fit yeah, in yeah. that category. Yeah, like that. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Tim Troll, thank you so very much for your generosity of time and wisdom. And um, so excited about these projects you have going on. For those of us listening out there who want to participate, uh, again, can you tell us where we can go to, number one, get involved uh, to support the Pedro Bay Rivers project, and then number two, to follow along with the Double Ender uh, boat adventure that you're doing this summer? Well, I'll follow up with you so that people can access it through your site, but obviously we, the Bristol Bay Heritage Land Trust has a website. You can donate to either project there by just hitting the donate button, selecting what project you want to go to. And then the Conservation Fund um, has a whole page, and and you can just type that in, you know, Conservation Fund Pedro Bay, and you'll find the donation page for that. Um, And if you're traveling to Bristol Bay this summer, you know, in the lodges or whatever, there's information all about uh, the Pedro Bay project. And we please, if you love going to Bristol Bay and hope to have it there when your kids are ready to go to Bristol Bay, this is the kind of project you want to invest in. So, Tim Troll, may the winds be at your back and uh, may you travel safely. Cannot wait to see you again up uh, in Bristol Bay. And thank you so much. We'll see you down the trail. 
All right, Mark. Thanks for uh, thanks for the conversation. Really appreciate it. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thanks for joining us here on Save What You Love. If you'd like to support our work, you can subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcatcher or at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. And if you like these conversations, you can help keep them coming your way by giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. For photos, follow us on Instagram at Save What You Love Podcast. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Mark Titus and edited by Patrick Troll. Save What You Love is a partnership between Ava's Wild Stories and Magic Canoe in collaboration with the Salmon Nation Trust. And this episode was recorded on the traditional homelands of the Duwamish people, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to this land and water. <laughs>